and welcome to 50 Words for Murder, the podcast where we delve behind the headlines. I'm your host, Justin, and today I have a very special guest with me, Lori S. Murray, um, who is a very good friend of mine on TikTok. She's known as Lawyer Lori. If you don't follow her, you absolutely should because you're missing out on some great content. And today we're going to be talking about one of the most famous, if not the most famous trial of South Carolina, which is Alex Murdoch and the Murdoch murders. Um, Lori is an expert on this, I would say. She might disagree with me, but um, I would say that she is. She was on Court TV multiple times for it. Um, she is a real attorney out of Columbia, South Carolina, and I will let you uh, say anything else that you want to to the listeners. No, that's it. It's good. Uh, we, you know, we did a lot. We followed the Murdoch case from the very beginning, so I don't know if anybody's actually an expert in it, but uh, I feel like I know a lot about the case. Uh, we've done a lot of analyst analysis of the case um since the very beginning so yeah we can we can chat about it all right sounds like a plan so and i I guess you're right it's kind of impossible with this scenario to be an expert because there are so many moving parts yes to this case between i mean this is a a man who i mean family who ruled this area in, in terms of being lawyers for what a hundred years they had to take his granddaddy's photo out of the courtroom before he started his trial i mean this is a family that's got roots deep deep into their part of south carolina well not just deep you know roots and what the the biggest part of it is that they've had deep roots into the prosecution of criminal cases so from that power comes a lot of other power the ability to make charges go away they i think use that power for, like you said, a, a hundred years or more, there were multiple generations of chief head solicitors with the last name Murdoch. Murdoch. Sorry, I'm in the wrong. I know it's well, it's because it's spelled Murdoch, Murdoch, mm-hmm. but it, he likes Murdoch just like his name is Alex, but he likes Alec. So it's very confusing for people who have no idea what's going on here. Like, what the hell are they talking about? So this has so many moving parts, it's almost hard to know where to start. I mean, this is a man who has now been tried and convicted of murdering both his wife and son. And we'll talk about that because there's some controversy, you know, about that ruling and the possibility of a new trial. Um, and I know that you have some theories on it, which which I'm excited to hear about and talk about with you. Uh, then there, you know, you're not going to be in trouble. Not at all. Um, no, you know, here's the thing. I have my theories uh, and and my thoughts on it too, but I'll I'll be very candid. I came into Murdoch late in the game, and you're from that area. You know a lot of the players that are involved in this whole debacle, or whatever you want to call it. Um, you have you have argued very good points on your theory, and we're just you know that's what this is about. We can talk about it openly, and no, you're not going to be in tr- you're not going to be in trouble. But I'm you know, not how far- in trouble with you? But I you know there are a lot of people out there that are very staunch he's guilty um people he did this he's guilty there's no excuse there's no there's no rationale there's no hearing any other side any other theory that is just he did this so i'm not saying that i would get in trouble with you but good gotcha. Lord, the the folks on the twitter they'll come after me well that's you know that's what happens when you're on social media but here's the thing uh I'm convinced he was involved, but I'm not entirely convinced that he pulled the trigger. I'm convinced he knows more than he let on, but I don't know if he actually pulled the trigger. And so 
people can be unconvinced or convinced whatever way they want to. We're going to look at what we have. And, you know, at the end of the day, he has been officially convicted. That's what the law has decided, a jury of his peers, um, which I guess we could argue given the circumstances of the area. Uh, but again, we'll talk about that. So it's with this, there's a lot of bodies associated with this family. Uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things associated with this family. I don't even know where to start. Um, you know, who, I guess, who was the first one to die? Was that the housekeeper? Yes. The housekeeper was the first to die. All right. So maybe we start there. Um, okay. now he was, not, he was not convicted of murder for. I'm trying to remember you heard, whether heard? I'm not sure. Actually, Stephen Smith may have been the, the first. I don't know the dates on him, honestly. So we can start with the housekeeper, but I am not, um, I'm not sure which one was actually first. Well, let's see. Gloria Satterfield died. We're going to look it up while we're here. That's the nice thing about this. Um, let's take a look. Okay. Let's see where she died. She died February 2nd, 2018. Okay. That was, she was the housekeeper and Stephen mm -hmm. Smith. Um, in 2015. So he would be the first. Yeah. So let's start there. Let's start there. So Stephen Smith is technically unsolved. Um, but when doing the investigation, Buster Murdoch's name came up a lot, is my understanding. Um, SLED, which is the South Carolina, what is it? Is it is SLED South, South Carolina, Carolina Law Enforcement Division? Division. Okay. Law so that's basically like, Depending on what state you are, it's basically their Bureau of Investigation. Like I'm in Tennessee, we have the TBI, Georgia has GBI. So their SLED is basically their version of that. The state police. Um, state police, yeah. So basically he was killed on July 8th, 2015, and his death was deemed as a hit and run um, in an initial incident report by the medical examiner's office. The report cited the cause of death as being blood uh, head trauma sustained by being hit by a vehicle. Uh, so going back on this one, he was driving home. It was fairly late. He wasn't too far from their property, correct? Like a few miles away from yeah, their property. Yeah, from the property. Yeah, and it was Moselle he was near? Yeah, there's, I mean, it's all, these all country back roads. So yes, it was not yeah. far. Which, which I think is extra interesting because I've driven a lot of country back roads being in Georgia and Tennessee and, you know, even having a place in South Carolina at one point. Um, and you can be pretty far between places on those types of roads. So being only a few miles, I think says something. Uh, and then it was very weird because he was found the way that he was laying his shoes. There was all sorts of things that really didn't add up to it being just a hit and run. So I'll let you kind of take it from there. Well, I mean, there's, you're, you're right. There was a lot that didn't add up. There was, um, first of all, usually when you're hit, when it's a hit and run, you do lose your shoes. Um, your clothes are torn, shredded. Uh, there is a lot more damage to a body whenever you are hit by a car. Unfortunately, I've had to see some of those. Um, bodies are twisted and turned, especially because of the, the speed at which, you know, the car would be traveling. When Stephen was found, he was found on his back. There was only one injury uh, to him, which was to the back of the head. It was a blow to the back of the head. Uh, his clothes were intact. Everything else, his shoes were still on. So, a lot of people, the investigation into this as being hit and run was very poor. Uh, 
they they deemed it a hit and run instead of a murder. So a lot of people, there's been a lot of question as to whether it was a murder, whether that blow to the head actually came from a car because there were no car parts either, no nothing there to show anything other than a boy laying in the street that was dead. Um, so a lot of people speculated that it was a murder, that this was, you know, the kids from the high school, they included Buster in this group uh, who went after him because he was allegedly having a relationship or involved with Buster. Buster was supposed to allegedly been trying to hide this relationship with him. And that is why they went after him. That was been, that's been the story or the, the rumor that's been going around for so long. But interestingly enough, I think it's really the investigation has not shown that at all. It hasn't been, I think, and, and just so they know, just so the people who are listening know, um, it was, it had been closed pretty much until, and just, you know, a done deal until 2021. Um, and then apparently new evidence was discovered during the investigations into the murders of uh, Maggie and Paul Murdoch. And that basically allowed them or made them reopen the investigation. And Stephen Smith uh, was ni- 19 years old when he was killed. So I think the last, now Buster Murdoch just absolutely denies it, says he had no involvement at all, completely and denies yeah, you know, it's they would have found it, I think, at this point. You know, you want well, him to they be guilty. Found but... a lot. They, have, they haven't found a lot on this case. Uh, they do have the the running theory, and don't ask me names because I don't remember them, but the running theory now is that there was a boy who came home uh, with damage to his car, uh, and his friend went and told his dad, who was a police officer the next day, that they had hit something, the boy was outside, was uh, physically ill, and it was the other friend's car. Those two now are the prime suspects in this case. Uh, Buster, I said day one that Buster, I don't think, had anything to do with it. But it is actually turning out to be a hit and run. Um, even though, you know, everybody was saying that this should be investigated as a murder. It looked like somebody took a bat to the back of his head. Um but it is turning out the investigation, I think, is showing that it was probably a hit and run with these two particular guys that were in the car. Um, they both have criminal records now. This was obviously many years ago, but they both have criminal records now. And uh, those, you know, it's being presented to the state grand jury right now, is my understanding. Interesting. And I did not the, know that. Yeah, it's been, you know, they they've been presenting evidence to the state grand jury for quite some time now. Um, or at least on and off for a period of, I would say over a month, for, if you believe whatever they say, but or the rumors anyway, because the grand jury proceedings are secret, so we don't really know. But nothing has come out. No rumors have leaked about anything with Buster. Everything has pointed to these two other guys, these two other high school kids at the time. Okay, so it sounds like the Mur- Buster, even though Buster's name's been brought up, this death probably has absolutely nothing to do with the Murdochs at all. Right. Based based on what we know at this time. That is, you know, that is my understanding. A lot of people also believe that Paul Murdoch said he knew that they, um, this is a running theory on the cause of um, the murder of Maggie and Paul, that Paul was going to trade the information on who actually killed Stephen Smith to get out of his boating you know, under the influence that killed Mallory to help him with that. And that that is why he was killed. So that is one theory that is, has moved forward. But um, yeah, that is, 
that would be the only involvement of the Murdochs in this case. It was if if you believe that theory. So with that said, now let's go on to the next body, which is Gloria Satter Satterfield. Yeah. Um, so, so fortunately for them, you know, Stephen Smith is looking like it's going to come out as, as no involvement. So that's good. But this one's different. Gloria Satterfield, there was involvement. And I think what was the original story was that she was coming up. And I think that when Maggie Murdoch, um, Alex's wife, um, I think called the police, the or the initial story that was told to the police was that she was coming up the steps, the dogs jumped on her, tripped her, she fell, hit the back of her head and died. Is that it's been a while, but is that basically the gist of it? Yes, that that is the the gist of it. But she was leaving, I think she um, okay. and the dogs tripped her up. But and I will say that even um, Gloria Satterfield's attorney doesn't believe that the Murdochs had anything to do with her death. Uh, Gloria Satterfield was having conversations like she was in the hospital for several days, and during those several days that she was alive, she never once blamed the Murdochs for that. So the, the change in the story has come as part of Ellick's, um federal court guilty pleas or, or trials. He's come in and stated that um, that the dog didn't have anything to do with it, that she just tripped and fell, and that would negate the policy payout that the insurance company paid. So they're suing him. Let me go back. The insurance company paid out on Gloria Satterfield's murder, murder, Gloria Satterfield's death. And uh, then they they turned around and sued Alec for stealing the money and for the payout. And Alec said, well, it, it should have never been paid in the first place because we didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't the dogs. So I think that there's something going on with exactly how she died. But either way, there was, you know, nothing nefarious there was no murder there or anything it's it truly was an accident it's just whether the murdochs were negligent and in, in causing her death and whether the homeowners and policy should have paid out well let, let's let's talk about that real quick because um the way it's been told by the media and the way i understand and of course correct me here if i'm wrong is that what happened is she passed away and she and alec told gloria's two sons hey you know why don't you sue me i have good insurance that way you guys can get a better payout for Gloria. And so they agreed to do it. And Alec recommended a friend of his for to represent them. They got the money. It was awarded through the settlement or whatever they did. And Alec and his, his friend, basically Alec had set up a shell corporation to move the money that they got from that into it, which was, do you know how much it was off the top of your head? I believe it was close to $400,000. That, sound, that sounds right. Of the right number. Okay. I think that's okay. the number I heard that the insurance company was trying to get back from him. But I know that these kids have gotten more than that um, since then. So, well, I know that at the time, though, so he took the money, the 400,000, we'll call it 400,000, give or take. You know, they'll, they'll correct us if we're wrong. You know, that's what they'll do. Um, and he basically stole all of it from them. And this is not the first, we'll get into it later, but we'll, this is not the first time Alec has done financial crimes. He's he's a pretty big expert at that. He's got what like a hundred and something now federal tax or mo money charges, whatever they are against him. I don't know the exact number because I didn't do my research before I sat down. Sorry. That's fine. It's it's but a I lot. It, I mean, I know it's ninety nine during the trial. I think it's ninety ninety nine ninety eight somewhere in there. Yeah. 
That was the state charges. It, yes. It's a lot though, either way. But what um, he did was they, they took this money. So Corey Fleming is the, is the friend of his that he had handled the case and he had Corey put it in an account to, to forge consulting. So forge consulting is a company that does annuities. So, um, he created an account, you say it's just the shell company. It's not even really a shell company. It's not a company at all. He just created a bank account called Forge mm -hmm. so that he could deposit that check into this Forge, which makes it look like it went to the real Forge, uh, which is horrifying for Forge. They should be suing him for um, defamation. But so it, it looks like they put it into an annuity for the kids. It did not go into an annuity. It went into an account named Forge that Ellen Murdoch had control of. And they ultimately ended up losing the trailer. That, that They lived in a trailer, um, which they ended up losing that. And, you know, the thing is, trailers aren't overly expensive. Even if he had stole all the money, they, he could have at least given them enough, in my opinion, to at least let them keep their home. Um. But yeah, so Alec, well, he it came out recently, and he said I can't remember what he said, but did he say that basically uh, that Maggie pushed her or something like that? Because no, he, he what was I can't remember what the story was because it's it was you, well you know what it was I'll let you. So well, I have yeah. you here, Lori. We're going <laughs> we're going on memory too because it's been a long time since I've looked at this part of it, but um, I believe that the you know, and I'm being told that she was going into work, so. He said that the dogs tripped her. That would make him liable because they were his dogs. Um, but I think now he's saying that she just fell. And that is not so much the negligence on the homeowner. It's just, hey, she tripped and fell. She was on her way to work. So she should have been limited to workers' comp or, you know, not even workers' comp really because he didn't have enough employees for that. But the liability for the homeowner's policy would not have kicked in because the dogs didn't cause her to fall. Gotcha. Do you, um, the rumor, you know, so, back when this all first started, that was everybody, when everybody was talking about the Gloria Satterfield case at the very beginning of it, the rumor was that Paul pushed her. Um, uh, and then you learned that Paul, she was like a, a second mom to Paul. So Paul was very close to her and would never have done that. Either way, I think it was a tragic accident. And, um, I don't think that it, I don't think there's anything nefarious going on with how she died. I think that, the difference is whether the insurance company should have paid because of her death or not. Did, did she fall because the dogs tripped her up or did she fall tripping over her own feet? Well, either way, he still had the sons, you know, sue him and he still stole that money regardless of, of how that is. But I'm glad you brought this up and I'm going to stir the pot a little bit here. So you can roll your eyes at me on this next part. Um, and that's totally fine. We're friends. So I'm okay with it. You've heard the 911 call. For Gloria mm -hmm. Satterfield, I've heard the 911 call for Satterfield for Gloria Satterfield, and normally I would play it here, but I I don't have it pulled up, and it, it is kind of lengthy. But so you know, maybe I can add it somewhere in, or whatever. I'll figure that out. But in fact, you know what I will do? I will I will add it in right here. So here's that 911 call. Take a listen and formulate your own opinion. 9:24 a.m. 38 seconds, February 2, 2018. Uh, 4147 Moselle Road. Hey, can you give me the address one more time? Make sure I got it right. Yes, 4147 
You said Sanderfield? Ma'am? You said Sanderfield? Satterfield. Satterfield. Okay, what's the house look like out there? It's, it's a, um, it's offset off the road. Okay. It's a big house, got a long driveway. With a long um, driveway? Yeah, um. Is there a date or anything down there that they're going to need to come through? There's two big, big brick columns that have to come through. Okay, but there's no, like, date code or anything that they need? No, ma'am. And tell okay. them that they can look for a fellow on a 6x6 six six Ranger. Okay. Waiting on them in the road is green. You know what the, they probably know what the Ranger looks like. Yeah. You said, like, Fellas green. Got on a black, got on a black sweater, okay. a hat. And pants. Okay. All right. All right. Um, if if something changes with her, if she loses consciousness or anything like that, I need one of you guys to call me back right away. Okay. Okay. Well, how about how long is it gonna take? Cause this take up. That I don't know. I I've had them on the way since since Maggie first called me. They were toned right away. Okay. All right, but they're I think they're coming. Hang on one minute. Let me check. They're coming from somewhere on Belt Highway in Ruffin, okay? That's where their station is. Thank you. All right, but like I said, if something changes, call me back. Yes, sir. Okay. Hey, everyone. Hope you're enjoying this gripping episode on 50 Words for Murder. Remember, hit that subscribe button to stay updated on our latest episodes. And if you want to catch these episodes visually, head on over to YouTube and follow me there. I'm trying to grow that platform, so do me a solid and mash that subscribe channel button while you are there. Just visit justinontiktok.com to find my YouTube channel and plenty more. The link's in the description below. Now, some exciting news I wanted to share with you all. We've launched our merch store. Use code 50words for a special discount. It's the perfect way to support the podcast and my other channels. This holiday season, treat your favorite true crime fan to something they'll adore. New items added regularly, so check it out. Link and code in the episode's description. And guess what? I'm now on Cameo. You can book me for a personalized true crime video, and it's a steal at only $15. Don't want a personalized case video? Then I can also do messages for any occasion. It's an original gift idea for yourself or a fellow true crime enthusiast. Check it out for some unique fun. So we're back from break, and let's talk about that 911 call. To me, it was Paul making that call for the most part. I think Maggie was at the beginning, right? If I, Again, I'm going back on memory. It's been a while for this. But neither one of them sounded overly upset. In fact, if anything, they sounded annoyed, in my opinion, with the 911 operator trying to keep them on. I think they were annoyed because they wanted somebody there to help her. Um, but she was bleeding out of her ear and... Um, they were concerned about her. They're, so I I don't judge that reaction as I, I don't agree with your analysis of it. I think that they were okay. um, very concerned about her. I think she was still moaning and moving, probably didn't consider the fact that she was going to die from this head injury. Um, that's not the first place that I would jump to as, you know, if somebody fell in my front yard. Um, so I think that they were upset, but they were more annoyed because the 911 caller or the 911 operator wouldn't let them off the phone, which is what they're trained to do, keep them on the phone so they can keep the EMTs or whoever's on their way updated as to the current situation. But I think that they were annoyed that they had to sit there on the phone with them instead of tending to her. 
They had to keep answering these questions. They had to keep, you know, telling them what was going on. I, you know, I, I think that they were just. But there, but there were two of them there. And my understanding is Maggie was still, nobody was tending to her at all, even though there were two of them there. You can't tend to somebody with a head injury. She's unconscious. No, you could go stand with her though. Sit with her. But I think they were. They were standing. I mean, they were calling I, from telephones right outside with her. Uh, I my I I'll have to go back and look that up because I maybe they I'm were, wrong, but I my impression was that nobody was there that that they were both calling from inside the house because they were on no the because they asked the number one operator asked if she was talking, and Maggie said no, she's making noises more like she's moaning. So okay, they they were outside with her. All right, so now let's let's talk about death number three. <laughs> uh, this one four, is three and four. Huh? Three and four. Three. I was going to go to to Mallory Beach. Oh, okay. Sorry, forgot about that one. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I know so so many dead people. You know, know, connected to this fam, connected to this family. It's hard to keep up with all of them. So, you know what? I'll let you. I'll let you take this one if you want. If you want it. Well, you know, this is a. A sad case. They were all at a party. It's a group of teenagers at a party. They um, there's footage of Paul buying alcohol using Buster's ID. They went to a party where they drank. They got in their boat to go home from the party. They drove the boat there. They drove the boat back. Not unusual in this neck of the woods. And uh, Paul went to a bar in downtown Beaufort said he wanted to have a couple of shots. Some of them were annoyed. Some of them um, were definitely ready to go home. At the end, I think Paul and one other kid, uh, which is Tanner, I think, went inside. I could be wrong on that one. Um, but went inside and had shots. There's video of them sitting at the bar. Um, and one of the things they say about Paul is that whenever he's drunk, he becomes a different person. And he does something funky with his hands. And you can see him walking, the last video of them, you know, prior to the accident is them walking down the boardwalk to get back on the boat. And he's doing the, the funky things with his hands. So it's a, a, a sign, his tell, that he is past the point of return. He is, an, you know, he's become his alter ego. And they get back on the boat. They're immediately fighting over, you know, him driving and him having control over the boat. He's had too much to drink. They're, they're asking, you know, to let other people drive. And He's fighting with his girlfriend at the time. He spit on his girlfriend at the time. Um, they're fighting over control of the boat. And, you know, at the end, he started saying, it's my boat. That One of the other things his alter ego does is take off his clothes. He's already shreds, he's shedding clothes. And he, you know, puts the throttle down and starts going way too fast and hit a pylon um, at a bridge. And everybody is in the water. Um Everybody came up except for Mallory. Yeah, and didn't he, didn't as soon as she died, um, his family showed up and basically started kind of trying to take, like Paul's family, the Murdochs basically showed up, kind of trying to take control of the situation almost immediately? I think it was, uh, yeah, that night his family the, did come up. The and grandfather? I think that's who he called. But when he gets in yeah. trouble, um, that, that's who he called. That's who, he, instead of calling his dad, he would always call his grandfather. Um, so he was called and, but, you know, even the next day when Mallory's mom is standing out there looking for her daughter and they hadn't found her body yet, the, the Murdoch's are out there pulling the boat out of the water. Alec and his father showed up at the hospital and tried to control the scene there, tried to 
make sure that depended on um, Connor Cook, I think is his name, not Tanner, Connor is his name. Um, they tried to pin the driving of the boat on Connor and it was a story that they literally, you know, could have gotten away with, but for the other witnesses and the other people on the boat coming forward, um, it was definitely Paul that was driving that boat. And then the other thing is the, you know, the investigation that our DNR, South Carolina Department of National Resources, did was very lacking in that case. There were no field sobriety tests given to Paul. And when it's obviously clear that there's alcohol involved, there's, it's obviously clear that he's intoxicated. No field sobriety tests were given him. Uh, I don't know if they, I don't believe they gave him a blood alcohol test at the hospital. But, you know, you see there's video of Alec walking around each room, going in each room. And, you know, there's, I think, documentary footage from these kids saying Alec was walking in town, just be quiet. They'd handle everything. And well, with Mallory too, so she wasn't found right away. It was, um, what, eight days later, I believe two volunteers, I'm looking at it right now, um, found her about five miles down the river, uh, from where the crash was. And according to the coroner's office, officially, uh, she died from drowning and blunt force trauma. And as you mentioned, a lot of these kids were in the hospital. Uh, it was because after this accident, several of these teenagers, um, were pretty badly injured and required, some of them even required surgery. So, yeah, I don't know the specific injuries. I know that Connor Cook has a scar um, from on his face. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the one they tried to say was driving, and you know he had a definite lawsuit against them. But you know, I'm being told that there was blood alcohol done, um, that it was at least three times the legal limit that night, and um, so yeah, he definitely that that just shows you that DNR should have done some field sobriety tests. And then Mallory's boyfriend, which was the saddest one of all, is standing there, you know, on the body cams, you can see him just screaming out for Mallory and, you know, really getting angry. Heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Um, yelling at Paul. And Paul's basically walking around kind of with a smug laugh, um, not taking it seriously at all. And then your heart has to really go out to Mallory's parents, um, her mom and her dad. I think they weren't together at the time, but still separately uh just you know mallory was a beautiful vivacious kind uh, girl with her entire life ahead of her and all in this in in the space of a minute was taken uh because somebody made a bad choice and he didn't seem to care either and which is i guess it's a different care. that's a different we're not here to you know psychoanalyze him but he no, but that's one of the you things know. we talked about the um, the DUI crash that happened with the down here in Charleston, um, where the girl left the, the hit the bride and killed her on that wedding night. You know, I remember that. Part, yeah, yeah. Part of what makes that case so horrible is there's video of her in her jail cell going, "Why are they doing this to me? You know, I can't believe they're making me stay in jail. Poor me." Which is, you know, when you don't have sympathy or don't accept responsibility for what you do then it makes it really difficult for a judge or any jury to want to help you at all. And Paul definitely had no acceptance of responsibility for what he did. Like, again, he tried to blame Connor for being the one who was driving the boat. And when he, so eventually though, he did get in trouble for it um, officially and he was arrested for it, but 
by arrested, he never really saw the inside of the jail. He went there long enough to take his mugshot, was fingerprinted, and then immediately left. Yes. Um, so I know that a lot of his friends and people in the community were not happy about that. Um, and I would imagine that boils down again to money and influence in that area. Uh, it absolutely does because anybody else would have been arrested, taken to the jail and had a normal bond hearing and then would have had to bond out. Um, Paul was taken to the court and had a bond hearing at the court and then went down and paid his bond or probably had a personal recognizance bond and didn't have to pay anything at all. So all he had to do was the processing in. Yeah, just show up basically, get your picture right. taken and leave. Right. Um, so now let's talk about that was body number three. So now let's talk about bodies four and five. So <laughs> I'm not laughing. It's not funny. You know, the death no, of somebody is not funny. funny, but it's just, it's just most, the average family doesn't have this many people with their names coming up in the death of others, you know, um, but this, this family seems to, and, and we'll, we can talk about, you know, I think, because I don't want to just like, you know, leave Mallory's situation on the table. I think it's, we're going to come talk about it or yeah, I think it's going to play a part in what we're going to talk about here. Um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this in regard to possible motives, I guess, as far as rumors go. Now, I don't believe that the death of Paul, the motive really was the money about the lawsuit, but well, yeah. well, but, but it's a rumor that's there. So I think it'll be worth bringing up. So, uh, it was basically the next two people are Alex wife and son, Maggie and Paul Murdoch. They were killed yeah. at the dog kennels, um, gunshot wounds. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it here. Um, Police came. Ultimately, Alec ended up being arrested for it, but um, he claimed that he was asleep on the couch and didn't hear anything. But my understanding, too, is I, have you been to Mo Have you actually been out to Moselle? I have not. Okay, my understanding is that the dog kennels are not terribly far from the main house. No, they're within walking distance. Yeah. So you would hear, you would likely hear a gunshot from the house. Is, More than is likely. The point. Yeah. But he claims he didn't hear anything. Then he 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 gets up, he goes down there, and he finds them dead that's basically his story um what do you what do you want to add to that because i know i'm missing a lot on that no i mean he said that that they came home and um had dinner and that maggie and paul went down to the dog's kennels and he took a nap and um that he woke up and decided to go this is his first story that he woke up and um Wanted to go check on his mom, so he tried to call Maggie, yeah, or texted her, tried to call her, um, didn't get an answer, and then just left and went to his mom's. That's his first story. And it's not the most believable story, though. And but it was it was blown out of the water. Is the problem? You know, even if you don't believe the story, even if you want to try and believe the story, it was blown out of the water because of the infamous Snapchat video. Well, but we didn't know about the Snapchat video until the trial. No, but I, they, yeah, no, we knew, I mean, we knew about it before the trial, but um, that whole, he, his lawyers went on to one of the documentaries and were talking about the fact that that was his alibi. His lawyers gave his alibi on TV um, because that was what he was telling everybody. And then all of a sudden Sled comes out and says, here's our, hey, have you seen this video of you? Is that your voice in the background? First of all, is this you and 
Paul riding around, you know, talking about the tree. Those aren't the clothes you were wearing. And then there's this other video that we found, and that's the, the one that really blows it out of the water for him is this voice is in the background of a video that Paul made uh, moments before he died. Which so, shows that Alec was there. So what in what capacity? I guess well, I guess that's the question. I mean, that's the thing you have to look at. For me, uh, I don't believe that. I, I have said this from the beginning. I don't believe that he pulled the trigger. I don't believe that you're riding around with your son all night, you know, not all night, but right before you know, that afternoon, let's say that afternoon, because Paul didn't come in. Paul was not there. Paul came in that day. Uh, Alec asked him to come there. That's one issue that was, you know, not really brought up, but Alec did, um, I guess it was brought up, but it wasn't really harped on, but Alec did ask Paul to come home. So Paul came home and because he was away at school. So Paul comes home and then they ride the, um, the property. And so at one point there's a, a Snapchat of, Alec, you know, playing with a tree that's not standing up correctly and Paul laughing at him. So they're laughing and this is, you know, a funny moment between the two of them. That one comes in because he's wearing different clothes in that video than he was whenever the police got to the scene and those clothes have never been found. Um, but the other video is, you know, of him right behind his voice in the background. But again, when I say that I don't believe that he did it, it's because he was riding around. He was riding the property. There's no animosity there. There's nothing, you know, to to show or to think that he was going to turn on his kid. It wasn't like he was. Yeah. I mean, if you know that in an hour you're going to kill your kid, would you make that it might be inflected in your voice? Yeah. It yeah. Might. Would you make it more emotional? Wouldn't you be like, you know, a little bit more heartfelt? They were laughing and cutting up like nothing was wrong. And then in the video or the, you know, where his voice is heard, he's, you know, there's nothing to indicate that, that you know, within three minutes he was going to gun both of them down. And so I just have a really difficult time to believe that in that, that three minutes that he snapped and picked up two different guns and shot both of them. I, I don't, I, I will, I'll go to my grave, not believing it, but, um, We'll see. I mean, you know, I don't think we're ever going to have the answer to it because he knows. I believe he was there. He had to have been there because Paul's phone went dead literally like three minutes after that video. Um, Maggie's phone stopped moving literally three minutes after that video. So that is believed to be the time of death because their phone stopped moving. So something happened in that three minutes. And he's what, you know, there's when he says, Come here, Bubba, you know, Bubba the dog. That's a guinea. Come here, Bubba, you know, trying to get the guinea out of the dog's mouth. And from there, he goes to gun down his family, two, you know, two people. And I just, I have a hard time believing it. I don't buy the, the motive that the state gave. Um, I don't believe that the motive should have been allowed in to that extent. Their alleged motive, they shouldn't let all those financial crimes in. But... Um, yeah, you just can't convince me that somebody goes from laughing and talking about the dog with a guinea in its mouth to gunning, um, two of the people he loved most in the world down. Just don't I, I do want to, I, I do want to say something, um, to something that you just said, um, about the financial crimes being brought in. I actually, and a lot of people might disagree with both of us on this. I agree with you. They weren't 
convictions at that point. He was they were alleged and bringing up alleged crimes that are completely unrelated. I, I guess what they're trying to, I guess the 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 gap they're trying to bridge with it is that he really needed money. There was a lawsuit for millions of dollars with Mallory Beach's family. We get rid of Paul, then that you know that's kind of what they're trying to say. But at the same time. You know, going also with the fact that he, you know, was having all these financial issues. Um, supposedly, there were rumors that, you know, at any day that everything was going to break on his financial crimes. And all of this could have led to the reasons why he would have killed Paul and Maggie. And, and I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm challenged to believe that to be a motive um, for all the reasons that you said. And, and I, I also agree that you're right. If in a video in an hour or less three minutes later, you're going to kill somebody. You might have a different tone and cadence in your voice. And he didn't have mm -hmm. that. Um, well, let me say, so let me talk about this financial crimes too, with regard to the legal standpoint of that, because with the legal standpoint of that, even they, they're not convictions, they are prior bad acts. So um, there's some rules as to whether the prior bad acts can come in. And that one of them is if they go to motive. And so Judge Newman felt that they went towards motive. It was obviously a judgment call. It was his call to make, and he let them in. Um, but to, to say they went to motive is, that's the judgment call. Um, and whether you believe that being caught for these financial crimes, and by the way, the law firm was on to him by, at this time. So they were already investigating um, these financial issues. So he knew that they were on to him. And I think that that's one of the things that the state used um, to say that this was his motive because he, every time something bad happened, then he'd get a little reprieve. So like his dad is go is sick and his dad is in the hospital and they get off his back for a minute. And by they, I mean the boating, the boating case gets put off for a minute. He doesn't have to put his financial records in um, as part of the request for production he isn't doesn't have to turn those over so it buys him a little time but he's never you know as an attorney who answers depositions and which he did he knows that he's never going to fully get away from it because they're always going to not just check the balances they're going to check his bank records from you know for a period of time so he's never getting away from them Killing Maggie and Paul for that reason makes no sense to me. No, because you're not going to get away from it. And also, the law firm's already on to you, so you know you're going to be. She's, you know, member. Uh, uh, what is her name? Jeannie Seconder. So Jeannie was the chief financial. She handled all the money at the law firm. She had already had conversations with Alec about checks missing and things that were that. So. It was it was coming up. It just didn't make it doesn't make any sense that okay, I'm gonna kill my wife and child who I love more than anything, and I believe he did love Maggie and I believe he did love Paul. Um, I'm gonna kill them just so I can buy myself a couple minutes of freedom, or that this will make the boating case go away because Paul's dead. It won't make the boating case go away. He's a plaintiff's attorney and he knows that. Now the lawsuit is against Paul's estate, so it doesn't make it go away. And he knew that. Plain and simple. Yeah. He's one of the firms that handles these big cases. So to me, it just doesn't make sense. And and let's talk about the money real quick. So for, for Mallory, they ultimately ended up settling for $15 million. And, and the thing about that is, and, and you can 
correct me on this if I'm if I'm mistaken, but you can have a judgment. It doesn't mean you're ever going to get paid out on it. Thanks. So, you know, to, and somebody like Alec, he could have easily pushed that out to never have to, to truly pay. It's kind of like, you know, so very recently we know kind of switching gears with Natalie Holloway, your Vandersloot was, was ordered to pay 250,000 in $1, I believe. He's going to get sent back to Brew. He's, Beth Holloway's never going to see some of that money. No. It's more for principal. And so that's going to be the same thing, I believe, with with. She's gotten some money. Natalie's Definitely family. has gotten some money. Probably not $15 million. No, I don't think they've gotten $15 million, but they have gotten some money. I mean, they got and, money from um, from um, Maggie's estate. They got money from um, the homeowner's insurance, I think, the voting policy. I, and, and what assets Alec did have in his 401k. And then by the sale of Moselle, those, they were paid off some money. Okay, and then so for for Alec himself to talk about you know his money and how much he stole, um, state agents said that his tax returns show that he made nearly fourteen million dollars as a lawyer over a nine year period, which I guess is a very prominent, very well known lawyer. You know that doesn't seem completely unreasonable. Maybe a little bit more unreasonable in a smaller town when you're probably the bulk of the wealth, your family's the bulk of the wealth in that town. Maybe, but then there's also um, they found he stole nearly $7 million from his law firm at the same time. Uh, Crazy. So Crazy money. It's, 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 it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a shit ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a shit ton of money. And, and in that part of the world, like for some people who's like, okay, well, you know, you're looking at it from like, I don't know, Los Angeles, for example, $14 million, 20, you know, $21 million might not be, I mean, it is a lot of money, but in low country, South Carolina, that is extreme wealth, extreme yeah. wealth. And, and they all, you know, that entire firm, they all do very well for themselves but because they don't just handle regular um, accident cases. They handle tragic, horrifying train wrecks and, um, and juries in that county. So, I mean, they, they built their reputation. They, they sponsored um, little leagues. They put their name on everything so that they were very well known. And so the juries liked them and juries were giving them big money. So they made a lot of money. Every one of those lawyers did. And um, yeah, houses in like Moselle selling for 2.9 million um, was what it sold for at auction. Uh, I don't know. I say auction when it went up for sale the first time they, it was 2.9 is what I think they sold it for. Um, or 2.6, might have been 2.6, but either way, that house is not worth um, 2.6, and now it's up for sale again for. 1. Actually, 9. I looked it up. It sold for it sold for 3.9 million dollars. No, that was the listing. Oh uh, no, that was that. Never mind. Sorry, it sold. Okay, it says no. It says the expansive Murdoch family estate is back on the market just a few months after it sold for 3.9. Right. However, the 1,700 acres of it. That's wrong. Okay. Yeah, that's on it US. listed for three point nine. It sold for like two point six. Okay, and it's seventeen hundred acres, which mm -hmm. is a lot of land. I mean, there's a lot of land. Right, and the, um, I, I broke this down at one point um, in one of my videos because when you break it down, the price that was per acre of land after this, you know, when these when the first set of people bought it, 
it was a little over a thousand dollars an acre so they have sectioned off the house from the rest of the property and they're trying to sell the house for 1.9 which is 90 something thousand dollars an acre which is in, which is, for that area is insane but absolutely insane but it's got the name attached to it so but you who know, would want to live in that house i wouldn't no i wouldn't either so I, you it, know it's it, interesting to me i'll be interested to see if they get it i'll be interested to see how much it sells for and it's probably right so well done. yeah and the house the house isn't even that big it was like what four thousand square feet 40 something like that five thousand somewhere in that neighborhood which is i, I mean not a small that. house I which that, is not yeah. a small house yeah which is not a small yeah. house but it's not it's you know it's not a mansion it's a it's large mansion. home mm-hmm. and I mean, these are people for as much money as they have. They lived, I would say, fairly modest. And he didn't he get the house like as part of a deal or something like a trade. Got the land. Get, he got the land for the trade. Okay. Yeah. For I mean that he got it for like a dollar. So I think yeah. he had been, you know, and and the man that he got it from, Mr. Bulware, um, was known to be a drug smuggler, and nobody knows the reason or why. He ended up giving him the. I know he took care of Mr. Bulware when he was dying, um, but he deeded that property over to him for like a dollar. Mm-hmm. So I want to put a pin in the drug smuggler thing for a minute um, because I know that that's going to make a good transition for you to talk about kind of your beliefs in this. Um, so I know that we're not going to listen to it right now, but we'll we'll again put another pause right here um, so that I can play the nine one one call. So here's that 911 call that Alex Murdoch made when he discovered the bodies of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul. Okay, and did you see anyone? Okay, is he breathing at all? 
is she okay? Do you see anything? Do you see anyone in the area? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. What color is your house on the outside? What color is your house on the outside? Uh, it's white. You can't see it from the road. Okay, is it a house or a mobile home? It's a house. Okay, and what is your name? My name is Alec Murdoch. Okay, and did you hear anything, or did you come home and find them? No, man, I've been gone. I, I just came back. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. Please hurry. We're getting somebody out there to you. Oh. 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 Uh -huh. Okay, what is her name? Maggie, Maggie and Paul. Uh, Maggie is her name? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And please hurry. Uh, we're getting somebody out there to you. Me asking you these questions, don't slow them down, okay? And you sure they're not breathing? Is he moving at all, your son? I know you said that she was shot, but what about your son? <laughs> Nobody's. They're not. Neither one of them's moving. What is your telephone number? And does anything look out of place? Ma'am, I... I Not not particularly, really, no, ma'am. Okay. Okay. All right, I'm going back down there. Close, yeah, they're, they've been around route with you ever since uh, you've got on the phone with me. I have multiple people coming out there to you.
home for me, Mr. Murdoch? Yes. Okay. I don't want you to touch them at all, okay? I don't I don't know if you've already touched them, but I don't I don't want you to touch them just in case they can get any kind of evidence, okay? I I already touched them trying to get a um to see if they were breathing. Okay. Well, I, I just don't want you to move anything just in case they can get any kind of evidence, okay? Ma'am, I'm going to call. I, I need to call some of my family. Okay. Well, well, do me a favor for me. Whenever you see the officer or the medics, because they're they're all coming to you. Absolutely. Okay, but we have them come in. Turn on the flashes on your vehicle so they can see you. Okay. You got the flashers on for me. I do. Okay. All right. Just whenever you see them. Okay. How old is your son? Twenty-two. Okay. All right. Okay. We're we're getting them out there to you. Okay. And I will answer if you call. All right. Hey everyone, hope you're enjoying this gripping episode on 50 Words for Murder. Remember, hit that subscribe button to stay updated on our latest episodes. And if you want to catch these episodes visually, head on over to YouTube and follow me there. I'm trying to grow that platform, so do me a solid and mash that subscribe channel button while you are there. Just visit justinontiktok.com to find my YouTube channel and plenty more. The link's in the description below. Now some exciting news I wanted to share with you all. We've launched our merch store. Use code 50WORDS for a special discount. It's the perfect way to support the podcast and my other channels. This holiday season, treat your favorite true crime fan to something they'll adore. New items added regularly, so check it out. Link and code in the episode's description. And guess what? I'm now on Cameo. You can book me for a personalized true crime video, and it's a steal at only $15. Don't want a personalized case video? Then I can also do messages for any occasion. It's an original gift idea for yourself or a fellow true crime enthusiast. Check it out for some unique fun. And we're back. And regarding that 911 call, that was something that was challenging to believe. The, the, the 911 call to me sounded very insincere. And again, like I said a second ago, um, it's hard to, it, it's really hard to judge somebody on the way that they're feeling in a moment of shock and grief. So I, you know, I'll try to handle that with Kid Club. But to me, it felt like a very insincere 911 phone call. At the same time, then when they had him, when the police were there and they had him in the car talking, I mean, those tears, to me, the tears seem like crocodile tears. To everybody watching it, they seem like crocodile tears. Um, you can disagree with me. You're, you had the look on your face shows no, that you might I disagree don't. with me. Disagree oh. with you at all. Oh. I don't at all. Okay. I love to hear I think he turned it on. He turned it off. Um, you know, one minute, especially, you know, the body cam video uh, from the first responding officer, he was one minute, he is. Yeah, you know, completely bawling his eyes out, and then he'd be, you know, somebody new would walk up and he'd go, "How you doing?" Uh, you know, it was weird. The whole thing was so. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you. I think that um, his his call and his demeanor that night were very strange. As as an attorney, what would you if you had? I don't say heard in court. I'll let you kind of answer this however you want. But like, what would you make of that? Of both of those events, if you were, you know in a situation that you heard those? 
Well, you know, as a prosecutor, a former prosecutor, I would have made the same thing out of it that they did, which is there's something not right here. There's, you know, and the first place you always look, and he should have known that, and I think he probably did, is that the first person that is always the suspect is the husband, the spouse, whatever it is. Um, 100%. But, so, you know, I think I made out of it just what everybody else did. Something's not right. Something's up. He was immediately a suspect. After and that why? Okay, so then why do you believe that he chose to to put on an act, a dog and pony show? I mean, he's denied his involvement and since the very beginning and since that very night. And he got caught in a lie. And if he didn't get caught in that lie by the Snapchat video, we'd still be hearing the same lie. But he got caught in it. Um, now, why did he lie? That's the question. The question is, you know, you come down to did he do it or did he not? Yeah. And I, I know that you I'm, I'm trying to set you up on this one, but like, yeah, what is what's your what's your theory on it? Why do you why do you think that what would his be his reason? You know, the truth, the truth will set you free. He's a lawyer. He knows that, you know, a good, good police force, good attorneys could easily pick apart a lie. What would be the reason for him to lie if he wasn't involved? Well, this is why, you know, I say that this is why I think the cartel theory makes more sense than the boating crash theory. Um, because well, tell them what the thing, well, tell them what the cartel theory is too. When after you do, the, you can do the boating crash thing first. But tell them, tell people who don't know what it is, what it is when you when you get there. When I say the cartel theory, yeah, okay. Well, so well, first let me say that you know a lot of people think that there is that Paul knew something, knew who killed um, Stephen Smith, and that he was going to trade that information to assist him and in, um, in his case, and that he got whacked for a better term or for lack of a better term he got whacked because of his threats to give out that information um the reason that doesn't make sense to me is why would Alec who has has to have been there why would he not tell on those people what's the motive for not telling on those people he doesn't have one you can't make one up he would absolutely tell on those guys um when you have the cartel theory, which I think, um, you know, and <sighs> I get in so much trouble because everybody's like, he did it. He well, did it. Okay. Well, hold Go on. Ahead. Let's, 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 before you get to the cartel theory, I, there is a, a pivotal piece of information that we have yet to mention that I think will make your theory make a lot more sense to people, you know, once they hear it. All right. Let's talk about the runway and the drugs. And I'll let you take that, and then you can lead it into the cartel theory. Well, we haven't I mean, talked about the runway or drugs at all. Well, the runway was there. He had runway on the property. Um, I don't know how in use it was, but it was there. Uh, they had a hangar there. But in the hangar, there were um, those farming equipment. So um, there wasn't a plane, but there was a runway that people could land. Uh, and you're in the middle of nowhere. So that's one thing. Um what was the other one you asked me about? The plane and the what? The drugs. He he oh, had a very expensive general. drug habit. He had a very expensive drug habit, but I think that the amount of money that he was spending, he was buying his drugs through Curtis, or Cousin Eddie, um, and the amount of money that he was spending on these drugs was not an amount that could be sustained for personal use. He's buying... It was obscene. It was an obscene amount of drugs. So, in my opinion... He was selling drugs, not you. I mean, not 
he probably was using them too, but not to this extent. Um, so if he's using drugs and selling them, then you got a whole different route to go down. And this route is too hard to prove. So it's a whole lot easier to say this is financial in nature and he just wanted a break from this Mallory Beach case than to come in and say, hey, we think there's some really bad people involved here because he's not talking. He's not telling. Um, you know, it, people love to believe it's a nice cut and dry. He was there. He was the only one there. There's nobody else heard on any of the phone calls and that he did it. And maybe that's true. That very well may be true. Maybe he did. I don't believe it because of the demeanor of the call. I don't believe it because I think he loved his family um, in the way that any psychopath can love their family. But, um, I, you know, Fair. I think Paul was the apple of his eye. Like, I mean, it was really Buster was closer to Maggie and Paul was closer to Alex. So I think that to, you have to come in my mind. I have to come up with something else that happened. And there, I'm not the only one that thinks this. You know, we were on court TV um, talking about this cartel theory because I brought it up. Um, there was an FBI agent on there. Eric Bland was on there. And Eric Bland represented Gloria Satterfield and has a couple of justice podcasts. I was on there. I don't believe, I don't remember who the other guest was, if there was another guest. Um, but I remember the FBI agent talking about the drugs. And I remember saying, you know, this goes back to the cartel theory, which is the first time I talked about it on national television. And the whole time I'm sitting there talking about this theory, Eric Bland's going, mm hmm. So it's not just me that thinks this. There are other people that think this. A lot of lawyers think this because it's just the only thing that makes sense. You've got a small town, you've got Walterboro that is, you know, literally a, 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 a three second drive. Like to get from the, when you were on I 95, which is a drug corridor, from it goes all the way from, you know, the tippy toes of Florida all the way up to the north. So it is known as a drug quarter. There are task force that run all up and down this that this stretch of highway. We Berkeley County um, had a task force that was just there to try and stop the drug trade running up and down this interstate. So you've got Walterboro. When you get off of the exit from Walterboro to get to the courthouse, it's literally maybe a four minute drive. So you're in the heart of Walterboro within four minutes. So drugs are coming down that 95. Drugs are nonstop coming down that 95. Somebody's got to sell them. There's a big need for them in this little community. They have this cowboy gang there that's in the that's in Walterboro. Um, and they're all selling drugs. And there's somebody's buying them. And then, you know, they're pushing them out, not just in Walterboro, but in all those little neighboring communities out there. And... So I personally believe that the, with the amount of money that he made and the amount of money that he's stealing, it's got to be going to drugs. But that amount of money is not going to personal use drugs. I believe he got in over his head. That's why he started stealing. I believe he had deals gone bad, drugs stolen, like drug robberies happen all the time. He might have kept report them. them. No, you can't report them. Believe me, but people do. They're so stupid. Uh, oh but, my God. Well, they deserve but, it then. They, uh, they, they really do report it. You can ask you know, <laughs> one of my moderators, Lauren Russo. Um, but um, you can really, there, there was just so much there. There's so much there. And so I think that it had to do, I think he owed some people some money. I think he probably had some money and they 
came in, they're like, either where's the drugs or where's the money? And point, let's say they put a gun on Paul and say, where's the money? Where's the money? And he's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have it. Boom. There's Paul. Maggie comes running. Where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the money? I can't give it to you. Boom. And then, you know, he's like, okay, 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 okay. I, I, you know, I'll get you the money, whatever. At some point in there, I'll get you the money. And you know, these two people then leave the scene. That's the only reason that makes sense as to why he would not be talking is that he is scared for himself and for his other child and for the rest of his family, that there's another threat that continues to exist afterwards. It's either you believe he did it and he did it alone, or you believe something like the cartel theory. Um, and again, I find it very difficult to believe that he did this and he did it alone. People don't believe the cartel theory because they think that they are so professional and the cartel would come in with a professional hit. But, and this, somebody, somebody has something to say about everything. I don't believe that necessarily the people from the cartel are in every single town. I don't believe that there are hitmen in every single town. They deal with the cowboys. The cowboys are not the most professional of gangs. They might be ones that would not take their own guns. They might be ones that would walk out there, grab what is sitting nearby and use it. And that makes sense to me. It just does. Maybe they left the guns there and Alec disposed of them. That's entirely possible. But maybe they walked out there looking for the money. Didn't, you know, Alex, you know, panicked. I don't have it. I don't have it. And they grab whatever is closest. Two people, two shooters, very close together in time. So let me ask you a question. I'll prefer two questions because I can't remember off the top of my head. What type of drugs was he using slash Oxy. possibly selling? Oxy, that's what it was. Thank you. Here's here's a question, though, for that in regard to the cartel theory. That when you put it that way, you're, I mean, here's the thing. I don't believe like, let's just say we're talking about, you know, the Sinaloa cartel, which I mean, I know it's not Sinaloa, but we'll just use it for an example. They're not going to send people in from Sinaloa to take to do a hit. They're not going to send people across the border to do this. But you're right. You could hire people locally to do it. The mafia did stuff like that in areas where they needed it taken care of. Um, there's no reason the cartels wouldn't do it either. You can always find a hired gun if you need it. Um, but here's the thing. Alec is up the river for the rest of his life, basically on murder. He can try to appeal it. And yeah, if he's going to be up the river too on financial crimes, that's a different discussion. But don't, don't you think that turning state's witness over on the cartel and turning those people in and then going to witness protection would be a better possible solution or outcome? To save his ass than sitting the rest of his life behind bars because honestly if, if if it went that high this is me asking this is just my my curiosity if if the level went that high to you're talking about cartel leaders and stuff like that and the ability to take down big fish like that the federal government could easily let the financial crimes go and turn you know what i'm saying so why wouldn't he pursue that avenue this wasn't a federal government crime South Carolina does not have witness protection. Witness protection. This was not a federal murder. But federal government could make it go away. So, because here, and I'll, and I'll tell you what I'm basing this on real quick. There's an escaped guy, right? As I'm record, as we're recording this, there's an escaped guy named um, Sean yeah, Williams, a mm -hmm. yeah serial serial rapist, pedophile, mm -hmm. um, and he got arrested in North Carolina on drug charges. He had 14, 12 ounces of cocaine, 
and 14 ounces of meth, which is just also a massive amount of both of those substances. And the federal government basically made the drug charges go away because their charges against him trumped all of those. And so the way the article, at least that I read about it, said that basically those charges don't matter because they're going after the the rapes and the the you know sexual exploitation of children and, and all but that. But you're kind talking of stuff. about something entirely different. You're talking about the feds coming in and pulling charges up. And this is it's not making them go away. It's charging him federally versus him facing charges on the state level. And actually he could have faced charges on both. This would be you going to the federal government and saying, "Listen, I need to broker a deal. Um, I'll give you the I'll give you the cartel uh, in exchange for you making all of these all of these crimes that have victims on it go away." I don't think it would have worked like that, first of all, and I also don't think that he was the type of person or is the type of person that would go into Witsack. I don't think that he would do that. You'd rather go and you'd rather spend his rest of his life in jail in prison. I do. I believe that. Yes. Okay. Well, it's not an easy sure. life when you're going um, into... Witness I know witness protection is not easy. I know it's not. You lose everything, you lose everyone. Yeah. And this you know, is... I, I'm a, yeah. yeah. All right. That was just it was just a question. So, um, so now he's been convicted of murder by a jury of his peers, which honestly... Let's talk about the trial for a second. Do you believe he received a fair trial? Take take all the stuff that we know now about, because we'll talk about it, about jury tampering, all that stuff. If you we didn't know about the possibility of jury tampering and you just saw the trial from start of the trial to conviction, do you think that he got a fair trial with jurors who could have been um, non-biased going into this? You're asking me to judge. That's a tough question. Well, you're asking me to judge a judge. <laughs> And I don't No, not the judge. You, well, that's the not only the way you're talking about getting a fair trial is based on the rulings that the judge made. So the well, judge is the one that, that gives you the fair trial. All right, well, let me rephrase then. Do you think that that that, that jury could have been impartial? Uh, no. Without knowing about... So Alec thought, this, you know, I saw Jim Griffin and Alec, I mean, and um, Dick Harputlian not long after this at the um, St. Patrick's Day Parade. I'd had a cocktail or two, uh, and I approached them, and I um, one of the jurors in this case, the guy that went on the Today Show, he was the brother of the first responding police officer, the first guy that got up on the stand at the trial. So I'm wondering how in the hell you put that kid on a jury. He's His, his brother not only is a cop, and that would have been, enough for me you don't put a brother of a cop on on a jury that would have been enough for me but not only that he was the cop on this case so i said to them to, to jim actually um please explain to me how somebody the brother of a cop ends up on your jury and he said that that was Alex's decision that Alex thought that that kid had played baseball with buster and that he thought that that might help him out this goes to the flawed thinking of a man like Alec Murdoch, thinking that these people still have his back. This town still has his back. They have been important and they have been well-known and well-loved in this community for hundreds of years or at least a hundred years. So he's, in my opinion, still thinking these people got me. So whether Dick Harputlin and Jim Griffin advised him to, you know, change venue 
I think they probably did, but I think he probably vetoed that decision, just like he vetoed them knocking that kid off the jury. So do I think it was, uh, was, was he going to get a fair trial there? No. Did he think he was going to get a better than fair trial there? Yes. He thought he was going to get the handshake deal and he didn't get it. That makes sense to me. That makes total sense to me. So now post-trial, I know that they filed an appeal. Okay. I have not been following this nearly as closely as I probably should. I know that you have. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to you about what's going on now and, and what you, and we can talk about Becky with the bad book or hashtag <laughs> Becky with the bad book. Uh, um, and because because what's going on now is kind of insane, honestly. For you know, and and if it's all true, then he then I believe that Alec absolutely deserves a new trial. I mean, because here's the thing: whether whether he's guilty or he's not, whether you believe he's guilty or he's not, every American, or by our Constitution, deserves a fair trial. So at least you know. So let's. I will. I will turn it over to you. So, um, after the trial, well, you know, and I'll say this, not even just after the trial, during the trial, at the very end of it is being somebody that was, you know, there, um, around the courthouse in the media doing analysis of the trial. We heard whispers. We heard something's not right. The jury's talking to people that they shouldn't be talking to. We heard whispers. So after this trial was over, Dick and, uh, Jim heard the whispers too. I don't know if they heard him during the trial and there was just nothing they could do, but um, we heard the whispers right at the end of the trial that something was going on that shouldn't have been going on, that something happened on the trip to Moselle. Um, so they started investigating that after this. They talked to three different jurors, three different jurors. Um, I think, I think it was three, um, three different jurors, Two gave affidavits. One wouldn't give an affidavit, but the paralegal um, gave an affidavit as to what that juror said. But basically said that, you know, Becky, who was the clerk of court for Carlton County, was talking to them um, and saying things to the jury like, you know, like when the jury went out. Well, this shouldn't take y'all long. Um, not allowing them to have smoke breaks. Six people on that jury smoked. They told them they could not have a smoke break. Um, until they reached a verdict. They told them that if they did not reach a verdict by X time, then they were going to have to um, go to a hotel. None of them had brought their belongings with them. So the pressure on them was real um, to reach a verdict and reach a verdict fast. And you also have uh, in these affidavits comments that say that Becky was talking to the four person of the jury, having conversations in the bathroom with one of the four persons of the, or with the four person, multiple conversations with the four person of the jury, some of them in the bathroom and then would come out and the four person wouldn't tell them what the conversation was about. The, the clerk of court should not be in the jury room. The clerk of court should not be having conversations with anybody. Um, if, if there is any conversation, it should be from the bailiff who's standing outside the door. There's a bailiff there to make sure the jury has everything they need. If the bailiff, if the jury needs a break, if the, you know, a juror needs, God, if a juror needs a tampon, hey, ask the bailiff because the bailiff's going to be the one that goes and gets it. And so for Becky to have been had any interaction with them and you talk about Becky with the bad book, she did write the book. She was, you know, inserting herself in this. She was getting cards from 
reporters so that, you know, after the trial that, that she could hand them out and go, um, they could do media tours. And she talks about in her book how they went to the Today Show right after the trial wrap, right after the verdict. They were whisked away in a plane, and it was the first time she was ever on a plane. Don't get me started on that being the first time she's ever on a plane. But, um, you know, the, it was just a lot of Becky looking to be important. And that's what shines through this book. But she admits in the book that um, they knew they just had that sixth sense feeling when they were at Moselle that he had done it. You know, we just had Becky <clears throat> inserting herself into this entire trial, making sure that Becky was the most important person. Becky was to herself the most important person that was in that trial, the most important person to that trial. And it shines very clearly. But at Moselle, um, Becky talks in her book about that they just knew they had a sixth sense. They took straw votes afterwards. They knew that he had done it. And then you have another juror come up and say that Becky had a conversation with the foreperson at Moselle. So those two things together, you know, kind of what? what what were we talking to the juror about? Is the juror one of the um, one of the people that you were talking to, and and is that one of the people that actually helped you come to the decision that that they were guilty? Did y'all have that conversation when you were at Moselle? There's just a lot of stuff there. So um, that's what the affidavits that Dick Harputley and Jim Griffin got. Um, based on that, the, you, and there's a lot with the egg juror um, that we didn't talk about with the Facebook post. And um, I think that the egg juror, the, the Facebook post in a nutshell is that Becky comes in and says somebody has sent a Facebook post of one of the juror's ex-husband and that that person said that the juror had said that she didn't think he was guilty or was talking about whether he was guilty or not. So then um, Becky tells Judge Newman, Judge Newman says, find the post. Becky says, I can't find the post, but I did find this apology post for that. Um, the dates didn't match up on Becky's story with that. The post she said was from like the Friday before or something. And then the apology was, the post had been removed and it's place an apology but the apology was dated long before the date that she alleges the post was there. So it didn't, the, the timing didn't match up. But the biggest problem for Becky is that Becky went and pulled this juror out. Becky was questioning the juror. Becky and Sled asked this juror about this post and Becky asked her whether she thought he was guilty. And this juror said, she said no, uh, well, she said, I haven't made up my mind. And, but it was common knowledge that this was the one juror, like even, us sitting in the gallery there's the one day I was there everybody in there said that's the one juror that he's got on his side right there and it was common knowledge that the Facebook juror was the egg juror was the one that was going to be the holdout if there was to be a holdout so Becky questioned her sled questioned her um Judge Newman questioned her she said this not only has she not talked to him and you know the that that profile was not his that post was not from her real ex-husband and she had a restraining order against the ex-husband so she would not have been talking to this ex-husband in the first place um that was part of it and then the other part was that an employee sent an email in, an employee of domino sent an email in and said i understand that one of the jurors has been talking about guilt or innocence 
the weird thing is, is that they never said who it was. They never were asked who it was. Um, they went and picked that person up in the middle of the night. And so the employee of Domino's was told by another employee of Domino's who was a tenant of the Edger. It's confusing. The Edger's tenant worked at Domino's. Domino tenant told other Domino employee that the Edger said that she didn't think he was guilty or something to that effect. So this person who really has nothing to do and no contact with the egg juror says, sends in an email to Judge Newman. I don't think this is proper. Somebody's talking about the case. Now, how they know to immediately go and pick up the egg juror, I don't know. But they picked these two people up in the middle of the night. They held them there all day. They questioned them. And then they shoved an affidavit in their face that said, here, sign this. Uh, this is you know based on our interview of you. But they had written up their statements for them. The, um, that girl then turned around and said in an affidavit that was not her story, that she had only signed because Sled had said sign. It, it was a lot. It's a lot. So those two things combined together, what got the egg drawer, who was the one holdout, removed. Um, so when the next thing to happen with all those affidavits that they went and picked up, Dick Harputley and Jim Griffin said, we have a biased jury here. We have some um, improper contact with the jury. Um, we have, I, we have so much going on that we think there, there's a lot going on. New trial. Yes. But we need the court of appeals because the appeal has already been filed. We need the court of appeals to actually set aside the, um, the appeal itself so that we can take a look at this newly found evidence of juror tampering. And I shouldn't say bias, jury tampering, um, because I don't think it was anything intentional on the jury's part. But if Becky got in and that got to them, then that's tampering. And there could be a lot of reasons where people voted differently. So that's the most recent thing to happen is that the Court of Appeals granted that set aside of the appeal, making way um, to have the evidentiary hearing as to whether the jury had been tampered with by Becky with the bad book. Well, and real quick for people who are listening, like what the, what the hell is she talking about when she says egg juror? Um, the egg juror um, is, it was this a juror who, yeah. Well, I know, I know these are perfect. This is in case people haven't heard the case, which, you know, that's the goal. Um, it's basically, it's a, it's a juror who asked to retrieve what, like a, like a dozen eggs from, from the jury. I don't know why, but it was after she was dismissed from the Murdoch trial. I don't know Let why. Let me explain why, because we talked about this. It was funny. We talked about this at Court TV when it happened. So there was a juror that was um, back there that had, you know, sold eggs, sold farm fresh eggs. And if you, you've got to have had farm fresh eggs living in Tennessee, but if you have never had farm yeah. fresh eggs, they are entirely different than eggs that you get at the grocery store. They are much better. So this juror said, I want to get my eggs. I would have gone back to get my eggs too. They are fantastic. She didn't want to leave her eggs because the, yeah, the other juror that had them brought them in for every single person that day. So they brought in 12 dozen eggs and gave them to all the jurors. So when he said, do you want to get a purse, whatever your belongings are from the jury room? She said, I want to get my eggs. Yeah. But that, that's just the people knew what it was. It's not, yeah. they, they, they made it, they made it way more comical than it needed to be, honestly, uh, in my opinion, but it is what it is. So, um, 
that being said, do you think he's going to end up getting a new, like, what do you think? I, I think he's going to get a new trial. That's my opinion. What do you think? When I look at the criteria for, and I ha- don't have them in front of me, there's five, um, there's five things that have to be met. You know, it has to be in um, newly discovered evidence. It could not have been discovered during the trial. Um, it has to go towards guilt or innocence. And that's the one you might have the sticking point with. Um, it has to go towards guilt or innocence. And there's a, there's two more. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But um, the the a lot of people put, uh, you know, stock in the egg juror saying that she's the one that's going to get in the new trial. The, the Facebook post clearly shows that Becky was lying. Um, I don't know. I think that whether those criteria are met, whether that, that five prong test is met, um, is going to be up to a judge. And that's why they're judges and not me. <laughs> I don't know all of the evidence. I don't know, um, how to apply that evidence because it does not happen that often that you get requests for new trials based on newly found evidence. I, this is one of the first ones that I have seen. Um, and this is a tampering. It's not like we found a smoking gun somewhere. We found another suspect. We, you know, this is a tampering issue. So it's different. I think the first thing that they have to do is move to accuse Judge Newman because Judge Newman is a witness. Only Judge Newman can testify as to the removal of that juror. Uh, only Judge Newman can testify as to the reasons behind the removal of that juror and his thinking on that. Um, I do know that there are several jurors that will vehemently deny that there was any conversations between Becky and them. Um, but you have to ask yourself again, what's the motivation for that? What's the motivation for the egg juror coming forward? She didn't need fame and fortune. She doesn't want her name put out there. They're using her number. They're not using her name. There's two others that agreed with her, said the same thing. They get nothing out of that. For me, when I look at who would be the one that would be telling the truth, because it's going to pit these jurors against each other. You got three of her saying that never happened. But the ones who got that, that never happened. If you're not the jury that convicts him, if you're not the juror member that convicted him, then you lose your spot in in the history of, hey, we convicted, you know, Alec Murdoch. I was on that jury. So I think they have a little something to lose. Versus, you know, maybe they do have something to gain by coming in, but that you would have to assume that literally four people got together and made up the same story. I find that hard to believe. So we'll see. I don't know if he gets a new trial. I think it's difficult. It's a very, it's a, it's a high standard. Um, it just seems like a sixth amendment violation though. Um, Maybe I'm, a, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not. It's definitely not a constitution lawyer, constitutional lawyer, but like. I mean, it's your right to a expert. fair trial, a fair and impartial trial. It's just, you know, the question is whether he got a trial, would this have affected the jury? And Judge Newman is going to come in and testify as to, you know, you've got to get the jury, the egg juror to say that she would have probably found him not guilty um, or at least had a better chance to look at the evidence. And then you have to get Judge Newman to say that he relieved her based on what Becky told him. So it's, it's a high standard. It's a really high standard. Hard to, hard to prove, too, if, if, if Judge Newman doesn't want to go through it, too. He could just say, no, she never, you know. Right. So, I do think he deserves to have an, a new trial. I think he deserves to have, um, you know, I, I think you deserve in this big of a case to have a trial and a verdict where there are no questions. 
And I also think that even if this doesn't work, the appeal might. I don't, I, I'm with, to me, this didn't go beyond reasonable doubt. You know, like there's still to me a reason, like, again, was he there? Yeah, I don't think anybody's arguing that he was there, but did he pull the trigger? Did he do it himself? I'm well, not, I'm not convinced. You think about too that being there actually makes him guilty. It's just not the way they proved it. I guess unless he was unless he was a victim too by you know like let's say the cartel theory holds water then yeah, he's a he victim too. Three after the fact because he didn't tell. Yeah. Well, yeah. So if he's involved with these people and it this becomes something that happened as part of his drug deal gone bad, then it's a felony murder. If you know if he doesn't tell who it is and there's somebody else, it's accessory after the fact and it carries the same thing as the murder itself. So he's guilty of something from that. Absolutely, he's guilty of something. Um, he just don't want to be labeled as the one who killed his wife and child. Yeah, and can't blame him for that. And I think that that's probably a good place to to wrap it up. I appreciate you being a guest on this episode. Um, everybody, definitely go follow Lawyer Lori on TikTok. That is her name. Um, if you don't follow her already, as I said at the beginning of this, you absolutely should. Uh, her content is fantastic. At the same time, I'm going to go ahead. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or watching it on YouTube, um, for Spotify, I'm going to do a poll. Do you think Alec Murdoch killed, person, like actually killed, pulled the trigger um, on Paul and Maggie? And I'll do a little poll. You guys can answer that. And if you're watching it on YouTube, just drop it in the comments. But Lori, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it and talking about this case. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.